Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Bernard Moon. Bernard is a co-founder and partner at Spark Labs Group, which is a network of accelerators and venture capital funds that has invested in over 300 companies across six continents since 2013. Previously, he was co-founder and CEO of VidQuick, a web conferencing and sales solutions platform. Bernard was a managing director at the Lunsford Group, which is a private investment firm with holdings in real estate, healthcare, and other industries. Bernard was co-founder and VP of business development of Going On Networks, a social media platform for companies, and also led their product development, where Business Week recognized them in their best of the web list. He serves on the advisory boards to Seoul National University's Graduate School of Data Science and Nanyang Techno- Technological University's Ecolabs, Center of Innovation for Energy. Bernard, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bernard, you are so impressive. Like just looking through your ball and your LinkedIn and everything, you want to hop right into it. What was your upbringing like that helped influence you to become the person that you are today? Well, I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in suburban Chicago in, in Northbrook, and my parents definitely had a strong influence on me. They they were both entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? They basically. Um, I mean, I, I mean, to be frank, it wasn't like a hard path for them, but what they did is they, when they immigrated, uh, like someone like my mother, she had to completely change jobs or careers, mm-hmm. right? She was uh, in medical school in Korea and on her way to be a doctor. And then she married my father and they moved to Chicago mm-hmm. and she switched to a CPA. Oh, so wow. what's interesting is that she, she was actually one of the first um, Asian American immigrants that obtained her CPA license in the state of Illinois. Wow. And then uh, eventually her and my father started doing small businesses in Chicago. Like first they did like a, a chain of beauty supply stores, right? Then they moved on to like luggage. And then they eventually uh, looked into uh, bringing some U.S. Uh, franchises to South Korea. Mm-hmm. So they uh, eventually obtained the rights for Glory Jeans Coffee, which back then in the 90s, it was like the second largest coffee chain in North wow. America after crazy. Starbucks. Wow. Took it there and then uh, eventually they grew it to 12 stores and sold it. Um, but the first influence is interesting that my parents had on me was the fact that they're very active in the community, mm-hmm. uh, not just the Korean American community, but the uh, overall, I guess, Chicago community right, in various nonprofit activities. So that's what spurred my first interest when I got to college, when I went to Wisconsin, I became uh, very politically and socially active. Mm -hmm. And then during college, my mind was set on not like running for office or being in politics, but being involved in public policy, Mm -hmm. right? So that was my first love, so. I mean, we do have to highlight Arby's, you know, (laughs) 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 want to hear more about that that first experience that you had at Arby's because it's so unique, you know, and 
Yeah, I think for me, it's like one of my first jobs too was like working at a restaurant. So like yeah. hearing this story is like, huh, there's a correlation. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive into the fellow, I want to hear about the RV story. Yeah, it was during my, uh, going into my senior year, my friend, my close friend, Heyman was like, hey, I, I need a summer job. Do you want to work with me at Arby's? I'm like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we, uh, we both worked there. I mean, we actually got on the same shift and everything like that. And uh, I, I think it was a good experience because, you know, you're definitely on the ground floor doing everything from cleaning the, you know, the restaurant floors to all like the greasy, um, you know, if you've been in a, in a restaurant, all the greasy stuff in the back yeah. to obviously making sandwiches. And the funny thing is I already loved Arby's before, but I heard from friends that worked at other fast food <laughs> chains after they worked there, they wouldn't eat there again. Right. Uh -huh. But Arby's after I worked there that summer, I was like, Oh, I trust the food. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I still eat at Arby's and I have faith in it. So. <laughs> Sounds great. <That laughs> yeah, sorry. Amazing. Off tangent, but we still want to hear quickly about that story. Yeah. Humble beginnings. I love it. But yeah. I'm kind of curious too. Like, you know, it, we were, as your parents being entrepreneurs, what did it teach you about failing, about taking chances, about success, you know, because you know, these are the type of values that are pretty unique to having guests in our podcast too, because a lot of us are afraid to like take this chance and, you know, move from the traditional path to the untraditional path, but you've done the untraditional path in your entire life and you've been very successful at that. So what kind of core values that your parents preach into you? about taking chances and trying new things. Yeah, and on top of that, you know, we noticed that your parents were in a few different industries, trying out different, That's you know, crazy. things to do. So I think a lot of people have this, you know, misconception going into entrepreneurship that they have to like nail it down right. And then they're gonna live with that company for the rest of their lives, right? And they have to do it perfectly. But it seems like your parents were, you know, very versatile. They wanted to try out different things. So talk a little bit about um, how that kind of shaped your mindset as well, going into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, first I'm compared to, well, that wave of immigrant parents. I mean, one, I was in Chicago, so I think it's a little different than if you're Asian American and you immigrate to New York or L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the dynamics of Chicago is slightly different. I mean, you do obviously hang out with a lot of other Asian Americans, but it's not as I would say like a closed loop. Like, you know, I have friends that grew up in L.A. All they do is hang out with like Korean Americans or Chinese Americans or whatnot. Um, it was a little more sort of diverse in that way. And then, um, you know, just learning from my parents, you know, they first of all, they grew up speaking to me in English. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I would say maybe like less than half of my peers. They had their parents speak in English. Right. And then they always emphasize really going into the mainstream. Right. Mm -hmm. And that sort of set the groundwork of them even being just open about everything. So when they were doing businesses, they would, they would be open about, yeah, you know, this is really struggling, right? Or, oh, this one, we, you know, we tried this, but we had to shut it down, right? Actually, I remember, I, mean, I can say it now, it was like so, it was so long ago, they actually started uh, trying to do like um, in between some of their venture uh, ventures, they try to do a, a laundry service for hotels, wow. like a commercial laundry service, right? Um, but some aspects didn't work out well. And so they actually quickly learned to shut it down wow. uh, within a year. Wow. Right. Then they moved on to their next thing. So I think I wasn't thinking about it at that time, but that helped me sort of build resistance and um, almost like, a, you know, a thick skin towards failure. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So I, I learned from them indirectly that, you know, failure is okay. And that's how you sort of learn and move on. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wow. really important. I think like the key takeaway there is knowing when to let go. Right. And, and then knowing when to kind of put your, your foot on the gas pedal. And, you know, if you know when to let go, then it's, it's a really good sign that you know what you're doing because, you know, there could be other opportunities that are just waiting for you out there. Definitely. Yeah. Dive deep into your first getting involved with politics, you know, mm-hmm. getting involved with activism and how did that lead you down the path of eventually becoming an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist like you are today? Well, yeah, so I definitely don't have a traditional career path. I, I think, um, you know, it was, it's definitely convoluted, right? I was interested in government and public policy. So after uh, I graduated from University of Wisconsin, I went to work for the governor of Illinois at that, at that time as a low-level lobbyist. And um, my objective actually at that time was, hey, if I find that I could work in this environment and not be not become jaded, right, then I think I could stay within this career path. And, um, you know, I saw a lot of things behind the scenes, even as a low level person, just because I, you know, I think I had good access, good mentors at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely the world of state and local politics is very corrupt in various ways. It's good too. A lot of people, there's a handful of people that are looking out for good, Mm -hmm. but then there's also a lot of people that are just trying to sort of, you know, grease their own wheels and just be part of a machine. Right. And so it was interesting just seeing the dynamics of politics, uh, especially related to a city like Chicago. Right. Mm -hmm. It's definitely old school politics. Um, And then, uh, you know, you see a lot of old practices that have probably been around for over a hundred years. Wow. Um, so after that, you know, I found out about this uh, Coral Fellowship. So I decided to apply and luckily I got in. At that time, they only took 48 people nationwide. Wow. Um, it's a very strong alum of, of current and former congressmen and senators, right? And a lot of people that are active in politics and government. So I got in, I, I, there was, at that time, there were four locations and I got into the St. Louis Center. So I moved to St. Louis for a year. It was a very intense program. I, I still say that it was the second best career experience for me after my first startup, mm-hmm. right? Because there we're literally for this, it's interesting for a public policy fellowship, you know, I was working like 70, hours a week. Mm-hmm. It was very project oriented and they put you in different sectors of government. Um, you know, actually uh, different sectors of society, not just government. So it was like, you had a government placement, you worked in uh, a corporate setting, you worked for a labor union, mm-hmm. right? You look, work for a nonprofit, right? And then we got high level access to uh, interview. So that's what we also learned is how to question, question things and question people, mm-hmm. right? So that was a core principle of the fellowship. And, you know, that's where we actually met like President Clinton at that time, Al Gore, we met, um, the president of uh, McDonnell Douglas, which is a, a major airline manufacturer at that time before they got acquired by Boeing, uh, the mayor of St. Louis. I mean, it just gave us incredible access to a lot of leaders where we could learn different leadership styles. So that's what it was basically a, a, a leadership um, and public, you know, a public fellows program, right? Where you learn leadership from different people. Um, after the Coral Fellowship, uh, I, I went to graduate school at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I was there for two years, but it was during, you know, the first internet boom. I was there 96 to 98. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And during my second year in graduate school, two groups of my friends pitched me to work on startups, right? Because they knew that my parents were entrepreneurs and they knew I was involved. And so they wanted to bounce off ideas. So my friends at that time that were like in investment banking and consulting, they were like, you know, pitching me different ideas. And, you know, we were, I was just giving feedback. And then finally they asked me to help out. Mm -hmm. So during my second in graduate school, I was, you know, obviously I was busy with school, but I was helping out in these two ventures. And at the end of, end of my second year, I picked one. Right. And that happened to be View Plus, which is at that time a video on demand company. And uh, that's how I met my co-founder, Spark Labs. Oh, wow. So uh, the two co-founders for View Plus, when we launched it, it was uh, Jimmy Kim and our CTO, Peter Chang. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of led me down this path of entrepreneurship and startups. And I haven't looked back since. Um, I really found out from that first startup experience that uh, I really enjoy the whole beginning process, you know, the chaotic mess of, you know, starting with a concept and just launching and building a product, right? And everything that goes in between. I mean, that's where I really learned the hustle, right? You know, that's where you really learn. I mean, not just theoretically from watching my parents facing failure, but you get used to rejection, right? At that time, there weren't as many active, uh, you know, angel firms or, or angel investors, right? So we we're, you know, pitching like hundreds of people to invest in our company, right? And getting so many rejections. And even for on the on the product side, you know, pitching so many companies, begging them to partner with us. Obviously, we didn't tell them we're begging, but you know, we're <laughs> begging them to partner with us. And um it, it was a great learning experience, right? I mean, we put in our own savings. We obviously we begged our parents for some money, but you know, uh, you know, it's like story I commonly tell, like Jimmy at that time, my, my co-founder, he flew in from Korea because we were developing the technology in Korea. I remember we were on a computer, literally going to credit card sites and applying to like 20 different credit cards. <laughs> right. So at that time, we, you know, we were putting, you know, a lot of debt on credit cards too to, to build our company. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I love hearing these hustle stories, you yeah. know, because we look at you, Bernard, like, man, Bernard's so successful, Spark Labs all over the world. <laughs> he, he sent me the deck that I looked through. I'm like, man, there's no way I can compare it to Bernard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just hearing the story too about your, your humble beginnings, your hustle mentality, overcoming rejections. It's a common theme among all first time founders, you know? And out of curiosity too, like, were there any time in this journey where you're just like, I just wanted to stop. This is too crazy for me. I want to go back to a normal job. And I'm, just just get accurate timeline too. Like when you first started your first startup, how old were you at the time? Oh man, <laughs> I'm blanking out on my age, not on purpose. <laughs> wait, no, it was uh, wait, how old was I? Twenty. Wait, so I oh my gosh, I'm blanking out. Around. Uh, I was I was in my, I was in my upper twenties. Let's say. Okay. Uh, okay, okay. Okay. So it was actually wait twenty. Yeah, I was, I was in my upper 20s during the first startup, mm. right? Like like around 28. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're asking about, uh, wait, I'm sorry, what the question was? Yeah, I was asking about like, what was the what was the biggest challenge during the first startup? And have you thought about quitting at any point of time? I think going back to like a corporate job. No, I, I think I was uh, stubborn like a lot of, lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, we were, um, you know, th- there's a funny story because also one of those times when Jimmy came over and we're, we're pitching for investors and partnerships. Right. Um, 
at that time we, you know, we didn't, uh, I think we had like a small amount of capital maybe. Right. And we had obviously like credit card debt and everything. And we were, um, you know, we were fundraising and, <laughs> you know, after like six months in, uh, my dad calls me in. Right. And, you know, even though I'm, you know, an adult at that time, my dad still sort of struck a little fear in me. Right. <laughs> you know, he's also, I'm like six, one at that time, whatever I was, was like two two twenty. but my dad's also six feet, but he's wider. He's actually very built. Right. So he has a physically commanding presence and he calls me in and he's like, Bernard, you've been at this for six months. You haven't raised any money yet. Right. <laughs> or, or barely anything. He's like, you know, business is like poker. You have to know when to quit. <laughs> right. And the funny thing is if you hear, if you uh, ask my, my co-founder, Jimmy, he was actually in the other room trying to go to sleep and he hears this conversation and he said he couldn't sleep all night. <laughs> Cause he felt this like weight of my dad's guilt on him. Like he was like rolling around, tossing in bed. Right. He's like, Oh man, we have to close. And I remember I told my dad, I'm like, look, dad, you know, I understand it's fair. You've been, you know, supporting me in this. I'm in a lot of debt, you know, give us four more months. Right. And, and that's basically, uh, and he's like, you know, he tried to push back, but he knew and saw the determination, right. That I had. And then, you know, eventually we, we closed our, um, yeah, we, we closed our angel round. Right. And, and that's what sort of led us to the next stage. Right. Which was, um, uh, we closed about 600,000 in angel funding. Wow. Right. right? So that it was, it was definitely a, a long haul after like almost a year of pounding the pavement. Mm -hmm. And then we, um, got terms to, it was a combination of, of things that we were doing at the time, but term terms for 33 million. Wow. That's wow. insane. That, that was a, about a year after the funding, but, it, um, but that was like during like the whole, obviously like in, internet boom and, you know, we, we got this large commitment, but the funny thing is then when we were building our platform, it, it was, it was basically, it was a video on demand platform for cable and satellite systems, right? So as background back then, uh, what, what we take for granted, like Netflix on the internet, but it was actually even um, video on demand, like instant viewing on cable boxes was super expensive, mm -hmm. right? In the nineties, actually to build out the infrastructure, it cost almost, let's say a million per home back then. Mm -hmm. right? So super expensive. So we found the intermediate solution where you basically tier it and you stream the content into these set-top boxes with hard drives, mm -hmm. right? And this is actually before even, I don't know if you remember TiVo and Replay. Yeah, first I remember that. Came out, right? And then set-tops actually all of a sudden, you know, they were building, building them out with hard drives and memory. So we were talking at that time to the leading set-top box manufacturers, General Instrument and Scientific Atlanta, and, um, you know, we got into their partner program mm -hmm. and initially they told us that their set tops, this new generation of set tops with hard drives, right. That could store things would come out in six months. Mm -hmm. Right. Then they extended it to a year plus. So we just got this money and they're saying that we wouldn't be ready to launch for a year out. Oh, wow. wow. 
Right. So we didn't know what to do at the time. We were debating back and forth. I remember like intense debates with my co-founders, Jimmy and Peter. And concurrently, we got an offer to um, back on it is to start uh, the Korea division or Korea uh, entity of a new startup right? Mm -hmm. called Hey Anita. It was a voice portal back in 2000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the background on the backstory on that is, um, you know, through a common contact, we met these four Microsoft execs, right? There are, there are high level guys that left Microsoft to start this voice portal called Hey Anita. And voice was very hot back then um, in 2000 even, right? Where even you didn't have mobile, but voice commands was actually, the technology was very, it's not that much better today in terms of like voice commands, right? but mm -hmm. you're doing it through landlines. Yeah. So there's companies as tell me, tell me, be vocal. And then eventually, Hey Anita. And they, uh, Hey Anita back then, they actually had a term sheet from Sequoia. Wow. But in, in uh, 2099, um, some, a little history is that Matsuyoshi son at that time was the second richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was worth like something 66, 60 billion or something from his investment in Yahoo. So he put a big bet into Yahoo early on. Yahoo blew up and he became the second richest man after Bill Gates. Uh, so these guys wanted SoftBank money um, through our mutual contact who actually knew that. So my co-founder, Jimmy, his uh, god uncle was very close with Matsuyoshi son. So Jimmy said, oh, you know, fine, I could do the introduction. So he introduced them. And then these guys got a term sheet from SoftBank for, um, let's say it was like north of 30 million. Wow. <laughs> right. So, so uh, he, they came back to us and they said, hey, we want to launch concurrently in Asia. Can you guys do Hey Nita Korea? Mm -hmm. At that time we're like, oh no, we have our own start, you know, we have our own startup. We just got yeah. money. It's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And then during that time we had that set going back to the set top box story, you know, we're like, oh crap, <laughs> we can't launch our product until at least a year out. Mm -hmm. Right. So we we're like, should we take this offer from the Hey Nita guys? Right. And then we went back and forth and then finally, you know, we just gave in and said, fine, we'll take it. So that's how I actually, as an adult, moved to Korea for the very first time, mm -hmm. right? Since I was an infant to do our second startup. Um, the Korean entity was separately banked, uh, backed by SoftBank Korea, right? Because mm -hmm. the US guys were, were backed by uh, SoftBank Japan and the US at that time. And then we were backed by SoftBank Korea. And then that was our, our second startup. Same team, Jimmy, Peter, and I, we, we were the co-founders of this. And then we we're launching this new voice portal in the South Korean market. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that's quite the story yeah, and the journey. I'm glad, uh, glad things started to play out and work out. You know, I think the hardest thing with most founders is like, you can't see that light at the end of the tunnel when you're struggling. <laughs> and yeah. the, mm -hmm. and the, the crazy fact about your story is a lot of things happen in a very short amount of time, as long as you stay mentally ready and you see opportunity all the time, you know, so hats mm -hmm. off to you and your partners. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of hard because, it, it, you know, there's obviously a lot of chance or luck involved at that time where mm -hmm. if we decided to fold like even like a couple months before, you know, maybe we wouldn't have raised even that first 600,000 angel money. Right. Or if by chance, like we didn't help out these Hey Nita guys and it wouldn't have led to this other opportunity in Korea. 
right? Yeah. Or a lot of things. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's by these like chance moments and calls or, or meetings, right? And yeah. you just have to sort of stick with it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like when those happen, it's like the universe trying to help you out. It's yeah. Like, it's like whatever you want to do, it's like, here you go. It comes all at once, you know? Yeah. yeah. What was that transition like just, you know, being in Korea? And I know, I want to hear about that yeah. because Spark Labs in Korea right now. Yeah. And it's pretty crazy. Well, my time living in Korea, uh, Korea as an adult, it was definitely an adjustment because I'm, you know, I mentioned, you know, I grew up in Chicago. So I'm definitely more, I would say, American in my base thinking, right? Versus I would say if you grew up in LA, right? Um, or, or New York even, right? So, and I was in, I was a suburban kid, right? Mm-hmm. So when I went to Chicago, definitely being very American, I didn't like some of the cultural norms there, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, as background, like Korea is definitely a strict Confucian hierarchy, similar mm-hmm. to Japan, right? It's interesting because, you know, where Confucian, Confucianism was born in China, you know, that hierarchy was almost a race because of communism, mm-hmm. right? Um, but so you had these, you know, sort of strict social norms. Like if someone's a year older than you, I mean, luckily I didn't, you know, I spoke like baby Korean and I still do, but (laughs) you know, um, you know, if someone's a year older than you, then you sort of show that respect. Right. right? And you show that uh, and you speak to them in the honorific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I went there, there was already some, uh, you know, friends or acquaintances that I knew that um, moved to Korea because the first wave, I would say in the nineties, a lot of, a lot of Korean Americans went there to teach English, right? But in the late 90s, it was a shift where a lot of white collar professionals started coming into the Asia or the Korean market, like Korea, Hong Kong, Japan, right? A lot of the banks and uh, consulting firms, they had Asian Americans. Now they could transplant to Asia, right? So that was an interesting time. And so even my friends that were fluent in Korean, they told me that they would speak in English. Mm-hmm. Right. To level the playing field because they were younger than most of their either clients or counterparts. Right. And so initially I would say I was resistant because I saw and I still sort of do see this Confucian hierarchy as I call it the crutch for the week. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's not just even age. It's definitely and it's not even spoken about sometimes. And I think um, I think some um, I would say ignorant Korean Americans sort of try to defend it. But there's a lot of sexism involved, too. Right. And it's still there where they sort of belittle the women in the professional field. So that's why overall, I just call it a crutch for the week, mm-hmm. right? Why do you have to lean on something on this hierarchy, right? To sort of make yourself either feel better or have this position of power over someone else. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, some of it is cultural and I'm not saying everyone abuses it, right? But there's definitely abuse, right? And, and I think everyone has insecurities. And when you have these insecurities and you have this power, I, I think you you leverage it at times, mm-hmm. right? So that's something that I, I definitely was against, but I had to adjust, right? And not be so brash because, you know, when, when you're, you, you know, when you're younger, you're definitely more brash and confrontational, at least, or I was, right? And I was like, oh man, they have to earn my respect, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, you know, they can't like talk like that or, or, or whatever, uh-huh. yeah. um, you know, but then I, I think I settled down and, and tried to, you know, be more in flow of the culture, but not accept the things that I disagree with. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to kind of highlight um, you starting Spark Labs Korea back Mm -hmm. in 2012. 
you know, what you're doing there is so inspirational to me because something that I want to do sometime later on in my career. So this, so when I, I, I'm talking to you about this, I'm like visualizing myself, like where do I want to be, you know? <laughs> so I want to ask yeah. you like, mm-hmm. like how did the inspiration behind Spark Lab Korea come about? And how do you guys find so much success globally? You guys invested into a lot of different countries, a lot of different companies. Like what was the formula like and where did this idea come from? Yeah, and we've heard from like previous podcasts too that it's kind of like the YC of Korea, it right? Is. And so kind of want to hear about how that inspiration came about. Yeah. Well, it was actually started by my uh, co-founder, Hanju Lee, the idea, right? So Hanju at that time, he uh, started Hostway, which was a top five global hosting company. And uh, several years before they launched Hostway Korea. So he was literally going like two weeks Chicago, two weeks Seoul, back and forth. And also during that period, he started angel investing more into Korean startups. So he was flying through San Francisco and he asked to meet for lunch. I said, yeah, sure. And it was in, I think, March of 2012, where he said, hey, you know, I think it's a good time to start a Y Combinator of of Korea. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't we do it together? I just said, you know, I'm pretty busy with my startup. Why don't we, uh, you know, I can advise you. He's like, no, no, we got to do it together. (laughs) I just said, okay, well, you have your company, I have my company. So we have to find someone else to run it. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I think we need a third. So I said, let me ask Jimmy. He said, yeah, you know, why don't you go ask Jimmy? I said, yeah, if Jimmy does it, then I'm definitely in. So later that day, you know, I call, you know, once Jimmy wakes up in, in Seoul, I, I call him and she said, hey, you know, Hanju has this idea. He wants to start uh, a YC of South Korea. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy was hilarious because he was at first like, oh man, I don't know if Korean entrepreneurs are good to work with. <laughs> I was like, why are you such a hater? You're a Korean. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, I don't know. Is there enough good startups? I'm like, dude, I was like, if Techstar started in Boulder with like our Denver, greater Denver area with like a million people, Seoul has 25 million people. I'm sure there's enough startups. And he's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, look, you could do it. You, you'll just be part-time. Just come in once a month. You speak a little here and there and that's it. He's like, oh, I fine. Right. So that's how the idea came about. And then, um, you know, that first month, I remember just setting the, the groundwork, right. One of the things obviously accelerators have is mentors. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember emailing like 50 close friends and, you know, friends are actually acquaintances in Silicon Valley. And, you know, that's how we initially started getting momentum because we got very sort of high profile mentors. We knew that uh, in Asia, especially because I mentioned this Confucian hierarchy, sometimes age is a factor, right? Mm-hmm. So when I looked at the other programs, if, you know, if they had mentors, you know, they, you know, they have a mix of high to mid-level managers or whatnot. And I thought initially for Korea, because they're so fixated on this age thing, we had to get all senior people. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why we got a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs or senior execs at tech companies as mentors. And then Jimmy, it was interesting. Jimmy, you know, had an idea. He's like, hey, why don't you uh, try to target some of like these, uh, you know, big names in tech? Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, I don't know. I didn't see any accelerators with like advisors or anything. He's like, no, let's do it. It's good marketing. (laughs) So I said, okay, fine. So, you know, that's when, um, you know, I started contacting some people and luckily at that time, um, you know, my wife was at Google. So she was at Google for nine years, Mm -hmm. two out of the nine, she sat actually right next to Vint Cerf. Mm -hmm. 
you know, wow. one of the fathers of the internet. And so I asked Vin, I'm like, Hey, you know, you know, this is uh, Christine's husband. We're still launching this accelerator. Can you be an advisor? Right. Mm -hmm. He said, sure. So I was very lucky and very fortunate that he liked my wife. Right? <laughs> wow. So, so Vin came on as an advisor and then it just sort of rolled from there. You know, I, I met Mark Cuban years before at a technology conference, mm -hmm. got Mark Cuban on board. Um, Ray Ozzy, who was CTO of Microsoft at that time, uh, he came on board, Tom Peters, and it just started rolling. And then in the fall, we launched the program. Um, you know, our target was small, like six companies, mm -hmm. right? And it was interesting because it was this range even of bootstrap, even for our first batch, it was bootstrapped to uh, a company, a startup that raised three, a $3 million Series A. Mm -hmm. Right. So majority of the companies actually raised um, 500,000 to 3 million mm -hmm. and they all wanted to be part of this network. And our positioning was to help Korean startups go global. Right. Mm -hmm. And and during that time, there it was it was very competitive already in Korea. You know, even in, in 2012, there was, you know, at least 20 accelerators there. Um, Korea was already a vibrant ecosystem. Right. But through. I think our positioning of helping companies go global and the fact that all the founders, we did our own startups or we're doing our own startups, right? Mm -hmm. That created this initial affinity. So if you ask, you know, what sort of our, our secret sauce, I mean, it's not a secret sauce. We, you know, we're very open about it is that all the core partners did our own startups, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. we were entrepreneurs. So you naturally have this affinity, right? With the people that go through your program. Right. Yeah. And you could tell your war stories. I could tell about only my failures, but then obviously my other co-founders, Jimmy and Hanji, they could talk about their successes and failures. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was sort of like a core tenant of Spark Labs is helping these startups go global. Right. And also just um, helping them knowing how to help them out. Right. Regardless of what stage they're at, because we went through it all. Right. And so that's how the success sort of rolled about. I would say it took a couple of years, but by 2015, we became clearly, I think at that time, known as like the leading accelerator in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And then we figured we could replicate this model. And that's how we grew. Like, you know, we launched in Taipei. I would say Edgar Chu has done a, a great job with our support. And it's clearly the leading accelerator in Taiwan now. Mm -hmm. And in Australia, our, our Spark Labs Cultivate, which is a ag tech, food tech accelerator, we're clearly the leader, I, I would say, in that market, too. Mm -hmm. So it's grown in terms of just reputation and branding. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I would say, you know, metrics, our, our investment performance is, is, I would say, top 10% in the world. And also even in terms of like shallow marketing, like, you know, Korea, now we host the largest startup demo day in the world. Like mm -hmm. before the pandemic, like 3000 people would attend our half day demo days in uh, South Korea, Taiwan, you know, this past November, they just had a thousand in-person demo day. Wow. It's also in Taiwan, it's the must-see event, one of the must-see events in Taiwan and then uh, in Australia too. So I think we learned how to not only run an accelerator program, but also help build out these startup ecosystems, right. you know, within these markets. I love that. Wow. Out of curiosity, did your uh, startup accelerator inspire the startup Korean drama that was really <laughs> popular on Netflix? <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know if you know, but we were actually the official consultants. Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know why. He's, I remember seeing some similar logos uh-huh. to your deck that you sent me with the Korean drama I was watching. So I wanted to ask this question. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. like, I've heard that their drama is actually based off of a true accelerator. Yeah. Like actual accelerator. Yeah, yeah. So if you look, I mean, it, they do flashes, but they mm-hmm. actually have pictures of our actual demo day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they actually had more, but they, um, I, I think for copyright concerns, they, they, they yeah. took it down. Uh, they actually showed like 20 plus of our company accelerator uh, logo, but they changed the names and made it like fake yeah. names. <laughs> yeah. You could tell it's, it's our portfolio companies. Yeah. And then uh, we had some product placement. So, well, taking a step back. So the year before they, you know, they started showing it on Netflix and in, in Korea, mm-hmm. uh, they approached um, our partner, you know, my partner and colleague, Eugene Kim, who is the managing partner for Spark Labs Korea. Mm-hmm. They asked him to uh, consult. So Eugene and, and about four or five others from the Spark Labs Korea team started consulting um, the startup uh, K-Drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it led to other things like uh, it got product placement for one of our companies called Endthings. Oh. So, if you, if you, so if you remember in... Um, in the VC's, uh, uh, what is it? Apartment. There's yeah. these, uh, Oh yes. <laughs> no, there, there, there's these, yeah, there's these, uh, uh, Oh my gosh. Why am I blanking out? The smart farming plants. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. 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 So that's actually our, our portfolio company's product. Wow. Right. Wow. And then, um, one of our venture partners, uh, channel park, uh-huh. you know, who's a former LA Dodgers pitcher. So he was actually, you know, in the, in the drama. Mm-hmm. And then before COVID hit though, they also invited our Spark Labs Korea team wow. to be on the set, but they had to cancel it. Uh, right? So I was guessing maybe Eugene or someone might've gotten a, a short, uh, you know, a brief cameo or something. I mean, who knows, but yeah, so we, we yeah, we were the official uh, consultants it. for, for it. Awesome. And then, you know, they, they, they definitely give, they gave various, uh, I'd say hat, hat, hat tips to us, you know, during yeah. the show. So. Yeah. I knew it and I had to confirm this podcast and we confirmed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And for you guys who don't know what, what the drama we're talking about, a startup, it's a Korean drama on Netflix. Check it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really good. Labs. Yeah, it is. It is really good. We really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> so we know, you know, you, you all started knowing how to operate the accelerator. You, we know how you got the mentors. Um, and advisors, can you talk a little bit about the the actual startups? Like, what did you guys typically look for in a startup? And like, how did you do outreach? Did you wait for inflow, or did you kind of um, do your own outreach and scout for them? And what was like the biggest difference between startups in Korea as opposed to America? And to add on to that too, when you start started the, the initial funding, did, was this like self funded, or did you guys raise a large money to begin with um, to start the accelerator? Um, so we structured it as a fund. So it's a small fund. So most accelerator funds, I would say are, are not like, are very small funds. You don't, you don't need that much capital. Uh-huh. Um, excuse me. Um, as background, I would say globally, most funds range from 2 million to 10. Okay. Right. Uh, the carried interest is the same as any VC fund where it's 80, 20, right? You pay back the principal, then you split the profits. 80% goes to investors. 20% goes to the team uh, that runs the fund. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, accelerator funds are a little different in a sense where usually half the, because it's a small fund, there's a lot of more operating costs for the for the accelerator, right? And it's more intensive than a, a if it's like a regular VC fund because it's more program centered. So 50% of the capital raise goes to operations, right? It's like pay the staff, demo day, bring in speakers, et cetera. Right, so that's how we did initially raise a, a $3 million fund for Spark Labs Korea, right? And then we started investing, actually, I forgot the exact numbers. I think we were like YC, we invested 25K and then we upped it to 50 and now it's like 100,000 for up to 6%, right? The initial, um, you know, you, you'll hear this from like, I think any sort of VC, uh, it's usually through personal network, right? And referral. And that's actually how we started out. A lot of the companies, we did do a PR blitz in Korea and then we opened up the applications, but the strongest companies actually came from our, our, our network, mm-hmm. right? So an example is like one of them is a uh, first batch was Nodi, it was a ed tech company. Mm-hmm. And that was actually referred uh, by one of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, another company, Ablar, uh, I was, it was, it was funny at that time, this well-known um, serial entrepreneur in South Korea, he asked me to be advisor. His name is Chester Rowe. Mm-hmm. Right? He actually was the first Korean startup. He co-founded the first Korean startup that got acquired by Google. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me to advisor and just said, hey, we're starting this new accelerator in a fund, so we can't take outside positions. Mm-hmm. He's like, why don't you be a part of it? Wow. Right? Then I could help you out. And so that's how we recruited that company <laughs> for the first batch, right? So it was initially through personal referral, but now as our you know reputation and and um, branding grew, you know we do get like sometimes up to or over four hundred thousand applications, right? Four hundred. I'm sorry, four hundred. Sorry, not four hundred. I'm sorry, four hundred. Four hundred applicants. Oh sorry, I missed. Four hundred people. No, no. More than that. Four hundred thousand. <laughs> no, no, not four. I'm sorry, sorry, I misspoke. So four hundred uh, applications for each batch, right? Which is twice a year. Um, but then we also that doesn't come through the online system. We have all these personal referrals, uh-huh. right? So now it's 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 a mix of you know sort of this accelerator machine, and then referrals, and then we also get even not just direct referrals on our own network, but referrals now from the mentors. Yeah. Right. So that's the great thing too is that um, as the mentors get involved and they love obviously helping out new entrepreneurs, uh-huh. um, they also you know, like the program, hopefully when they do like the program, you know, they'll refer, you know, startups that they know of. So it, it, it all happens once you start building out that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that's what we found out. It's really, um, it's a really interesting thing to see. And it, it's exciting when we launch a new accelerator is that we definitely expand the network like tenfold, mm-hmm. right? Because when we launch a new accelerator, like in Taiwan, um, you know, I'm the, you know, we had Edgar, Right. And then it was excuse to Edgar and I and others. We recruited all these mentors Mm -hmm. that wanted to help out Taiwanese startups. And then we, you know, got like I got, you know, my friends like Charles and Kai Huang, the Guitar Hero brothers to to be on the advisory board. Um, I asked through a friend, uh, Steve Chen, co-founder of YouTube. Mm -hmm. So he was initially one of the advisors and then it just expanded from there. So that's amazing. Yeah. 
Is there any notable startups that you can mention that you guys invest into over the years? Or you're like, whoa, it totally blew up that we all know about. Um, I think, well, it's mainly in, in Asia. So I don't, most, most of them, I, I'm not sure if you know from here. I mean, there's Mimi Box that has done well. They're in their first batch, right? Um, you know, they raised $126 million Series C. Nice. And then um, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Ray, you know, did a small Series D of $35 million. And they're on a good track. Uh, they, uh, they're they not as visible because they're the white label provider for uh, Sephora, mm-hmm. for, for key beauty products. Yeah. But their their product brand is called Kaja, which is a number one uh, actual brand for Sephora for, I think, 15 to 25-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's done very well, and, and that's, that's tracking well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, there's different, uh, there's different ones that are, I guess, like known in, in, in each market in Korea or Taiwan or Australia. Um, I'm not sure if you, you know, recognize them. We, so. we probably, we might, mm-hmm. but our <laughs> podcast is very international as well. Yeah. Okay. So, like, naming these brands get people all over the world really excited to hear about them. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, there's a wanted, it's, it's actually doing well. It's a, it's a job site, right. In, uh-huh. in the Korean and Japanese market, uh, to, I'm just trying to think, you know, I'm like, like, you know, no worries. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, like if you watch like YouTube stuff, like Asian boss was also, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, 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 they're one of our portfolio companies. They, they went through our programs. Uh, was 88 a part of your portfolio and taco app Taco 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 app? taco we invested. Yeah. And then, uh, 88, was actually on our seed fund side. Oh, wow. Right. So, you know, we, we launched also the venture capital firm uh, fund on the other half. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, yeah, we invested out of our U S fund into 88 rising. Mm -hmm. Um, That was interesting because, you know, when Jason Ma like pitched me, I I don't think he was like, he didn't know what to expect. Right. And then I I like the vision and, I'm not one that gets really excited on these pitches. <laughs> uh-huh. right? It's not on, it's not like anything purposeful. Like I don't like try to do a poker face, but I just don't get like emotionally excited. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So I just liked, it. I was like, Oh, this is a great app. So I just said, Hey, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of our, uh, you know, LPs, our investors in our funds. Uh-huh. And then, so in their seed round, I, I did bring two of our LPs into it. One of them was uh, GDP ventures out, out of Indonesia Mm-hmm. And then GDP actually led their Series C round. Wow. You know, they raised like a, a $20 million Series C. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we definitely, if we obviously like the founders, mm-hmm. right, and as we continue to see them perform, you know, you know, we bring them closer into, into our network. So I love that. Appreciate the, the help and hospitality that you have for the community. And yeah. I, I guess one of the, the second to last question I had is, it's going to be a pretty big question, Bernard. Sorry about mm-hmm. that. Okay, I'm gonna apologize ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> but what is your why and your vision of why you do everything? You know, what's the reason why you wake up every morning and just why do you do the things you do? Because you look at you were so successful already, you know, and you've done so many different things. You impacted you impact so many different lives. But we want, I want to understand like, what is your why of doing everything that you do. Well, taking a step back, I don't know if I think I'm that successful yet. We think right? you're very successful, by the way. Yeah, you, okay. you are successful. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think I just found what I'd like to do. And I'm not one of those that believes that you always have to sort of follow your passion, 
right? Yeah. You know, maybe towards the later end of your career you do, but I think early on, like you, you definitely take sacrifices, right? But I think I was fortunate enough to, uh, that I did find what I liked, right? In terms of sort of the startup sort of create, uh, creation. And also what I didn't mention is one thing that Jimmy and I did also during all those startup years is help other entrepreneurs, right? We always gave free advice to other entrepreneurs, like what to do and what not to do, right? And tell them our war stories. So when we launched Spark Labs, you know, we we joked around, oh, this is what we're doing, but we're just adding a check. You know, we're adding a 50K check out of our accelerator or, or a million dollar check out of one of our VC funds. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what keeps me excited, right? Because I enjoy just helping other people, right? And it just happens that, yeah, I'm writing a check for them, but you know, I was already doing it for 20 years for free, <laughs> right? So it's just something that I think I enjoy. Um, I enjoy helping them out. I enjoy them seeing their own sort of excitement mm-hmm. uh, when they hit their sort of stages of success, mm-hmm. right? But I'm also, you know, I understand even the downturns because in startup life is a lot of ups and downs, right? It's not all about, you know, basking in the glory or being on, you know, Inc. Magazine or Forbes or whatever, right? Most of it is actually, um, you know, very stressful, Mm -hmm. right? It's a lot of rejection. It's a lot of failure, Mm -hmm. right? And it's a lot of fears because, you know, I, even when I was going through my third startup, when I moved to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. it was when um, our kids were very young. Yeah. Right. And it was a lot of risk. And then it stressed out my wife a lot. Yeah. Who's not, who at that time wasn't a startup person, you know, very much uh, valued security. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and to be frank, it, it did create tension in our marriage because, you know, there's so much stress and uncertainty involved. Mm-hmm. Right. So since I went through that at all, I definitely sympathize with our entrepreneurs and founders. Right. And I could, you know, convey and tell them at least, you know, what I went through or what I was thinking. Right. Every person and every individual is different in terms of how they react mm-hmm. and, and take the stress. I definitely think I'm an outlier because I, I really don't get that that stressed. But I do get stressed when my wife's stressed. So <laughs> I learned that that's important factor. All right, let me write that down. <laughs> important factor. Very important. Even if you're not as stressed as you, you you want to show, you should show that you're very stressed. <laughs> uh, and we also know but, your wife is also a founder now too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, she is. So yeah, so surprisingly, she took the leap. Uh, yeah over a year ago to launch a autonomous driving startup for, uh, for mass transit and the greater space. So did that affect the startup, the green drama, the autonomous driving (laughs) at the very end of the series? (laughs) I think some people said they might've gotten that idea. Okay. Yeah. We don't, well, cause it's funny. Cause I guess the naming again, you know, I, I speak like baby Korean, Mm-hmm. But the name in the show was could be interpreted as uh, the name of actually my wife's company, which is Blue Space. Wow. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, for you guys listening, this is spoiler alert. <laughs> so <laughs> apologize. Many, so many similarities. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No more spoilers. No more spoilers. <laughs> Some people uh, haven't watched it yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Bernard, we have one last question for you. And that is, what one advice could you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? If you could just choose one. That advice is someone that 
is that you get back to yourself when you first started your journey since yeah. day one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me think about this advice. Advice. Uh, I, I would say, you know, okay. One thing, well, this is more critique on myself though. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to, uh, just thinking out loud, like one thing, like looking back, like I think I would have been um, more thorough in some of my planning for the startups, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely pay attention to all the details, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would say, um, I would say also just, you know, enjoy the moment more. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether whether it is good or bad, um, definitely be more self-reflective and, and learn from the situations that you're in. Right. Because everything becomes a blur, when, you know, in life and when you're doing a startup. Right. And so sometimes you sort of miss those learning moments. Mm-hmm. Right. That could maybe make your next startup or next stage of life, you know, better, more efficient, mm-hmm. more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Right. I think sometimes, um, especially myself, but I think people in general, sometimes you, you just are in this blur of life. Right. And you just don't pause right. and think about either yourself or how you could react. Right. Or how you could improve yourself or how you could treat people better. Right. Mm-hmm. And those, and those are some things I'm not a person that regrets, I would say my past or, or, or look back too much. Right. But mm-hmm. I think in some of those moments, you know, when I do look back, um, I wish maybe I didn't like blow up at my co-founder at one time, mm-hmm. or I didn't make a rash decision. I should have thought about it better. Right. Mm-hmm. I should have been more thoughtful to my wife. Right. Or, 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 or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, even still now it's hard to pause, I think. Right. Cause I, I'm, you know, we are relatively young in the venture space. We're eight years in, right. We're still running at hundred miles per hour, mm-hmm. right. I'm still working like 80 plus hours a week. I know. Right. And, and, you know, we're still trying to build this firm and we're, we are trying to build a firm beyond ourselves, mm-hmm. right. We're trying to build our spark labs for something to last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years beyond, beyond this. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not just about our, our immediate gain. And that's why we're very cautious about, um, I would say, our, our reputation and how we treat people and how we treat our founders. Right. Because because we've seen some short term firms like, you know, just looking for their, you know, to cash out and then they move on. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know, I think the core founders, you know, and myself, you know, we've built a very strong vision in terms of what we want to accomplish over the, I would say the next 10 years. And then we want to pass the torch to the next generation. So. Wow. It's very insightful. Thank you for that, Bernard. Thank you for what you do. You know, very inspirational. We keep hearing Spark Labs come up up time and time again when we talk to other entrepreneurs, especially in Korea Mm -hmm. and just watching the Korean drama. Like it's definitely Spark Labs. (laughs) Just confirm it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Bernard, how can our listeners find out more about you and Spark Labs online? Yeah, they could uh, go to sparklabsgroup.com or they could um, go to any of our sites from sparklabsgroup.com or sparklabs.co.kr. Mm-hmm. Go to our websites and uh, if they, you know, if your listeners want to contact me and 
ask for advice or or pitch their startup, they could email me directly. It's Bernard at sparklabsglobal.com. Awesome. Thank you for that, Bernard. And be careful what you wish for. You <laughs> 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 might, might get tons of emails. From <laughs> All right. Thank you, Bernard. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, Bernard. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Maggie. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.